0: Philippe Ariès, Centuries of Childhood: A Social History of Family Life. Article by Anastasia Yulanowitz, University of Pittsburgh. Philippe Ariès's Centuries of Childhood: A Social History of Family Life (1960) is one of the most influential and divisive histories of childhood ever written. Originally published in French under the title L'Enfant et la vie familiale sous l'ancien régime, Ariès's study puts forth the controversial claim that childhood as a concept was not discovered until well after the Middle Ages. Arias himself was not a professional historian. Rather, he worked as an archivist for the Institute of Applied Research for tropical and subtropical fruits. However, as an amateur historian, he was greatly interested in the history of the family. Arias was especially concerned with countering conservative claims that 20th century to 20th century family was suffering a decline, he sought to prove. Instead, that the family as we know it today, a private domestic circle founded on mutual affection, is relatively new concept. To confirm this, Arias chose to study the figure of how now considered to exist at the very heart of the family, the child. Childhood, Arias argues, is a relatively new concept that emerged around the 17th century, concomitant with such developments as a decrease in infant mortality, changes in the European educational system, increasing class stratification, and a gradual withdrawal of the family from wider web of social relations. A Controversial Claim Arius' argument regarding the discovery of childhood in the 17th century is predicated upon another much-debated point. His assertion that in medieval society the idea of childhood did not exist. This claim, which has been both enthusiastically adopted and categorically dismissed by scholars from various disciplines, is more nuanced than it sounds. As Hugh Cunningham points out, the English translation of Arius's text used the term idea, where Arias himself has the term sentiment. The difference between these two terms is critical. Sentiment carries with it two meanings, the sense of a feeling about childhood as well as the concept of it. Arias did not intend to claim that individual medieval families did not show affection for their children, but rather that childhood was not recognized and valued as a distinct phase of human existence. Thus, he maintained, there was much less separation between adults and children in medieval society. The issue of age. The greater purpose of Arius' study, then, is to demonstrate how the notion of childhood developed and what aspects of modernity contributed to its discovery as a distinct and special phase in life. He begins centuries of childhood by arguing that changing notions of chronological age affected the development of Western European notions of childhood. Today, he writes, we think it is very normal for a child, or for individuals in general, to know his or her age and date of birth. Yet, according to Arias, most people living before the 18th century did not know or care to know their exact ages. Arias argues that the curious passion for recording dates and calculating ages is a recent development, arguably corresponding to the rise of exact account keeping by the church and state around the 18th century. Thus, the concept of age, and by extension childhood, was quite different pre-1700 from what it is today. An individual was deemed an infant, or a youth, or an old person, not by virtue of his chronological age, but by his physical appearance and habits. Furthermore, what was considered infancy or youth in the pre-modern era was very different from what we might associate with such terms today. In the 16th century, for example, a child of seven years might still be considered an infant, and a man of 40 years might still be considered a youth. Such fluid or relatively indeterminate definitions of infancy and youth, Arias writes, were not due only to a different understanding of chronological age, but also to the tendency in the Middle Ages to view children as miniature adults. Thus, medieval artists depict children and adults as reduced to a smaller scale, without any other difference in expression or features. Arias also contends that it was not until the 17th century that portraits of children in their quotidian domestic context became numerous and commonplace, a trend that indicates a developing interest in children as essential members of the nuclear household. Child Mortality Which factors brought into this newly directed attention towards children? According to Arias, the high mortality rate in the pre-modern era caused parents to steel themselves against responding too emotionally to infants who might soon die. Rather than conceiving of their vulnerable offspring as unique individuals, Arias claims, Europeans followed Montaigne in assuming that young children had neither mental activity nor recognizable body shape. They were regarded as merely neutral beings poised precariously between life and death. A steady decrease in the infant mortality rate, however, facilitated an inversely proportional increase in the attention paid to children and consequently the representations made of them. When it became more likely that children would survive childhood, parents began treating them with more interest and affection. Arias supports this claim by pointing not only to an increase in family portraits, in which children figure prominently, but also to a trend in portraits of dead children. Such a trend implies, first, that child mortality was becoming more the exception than the rule, and second, that children had become important enough for their families to be mourned. A Culture of Childhood The rise in the affection and attention paid to children, Arias argues, produced a kind of culture of childhood. For example, the 17th century brought a newfound interest in children's words, mispronunciations and expressions, such as the French words tutu and dada. Moreover, a certain style of clothing, as well as certain games and holidays, became increasingly associated with childhood. For example, while pre-17th century children wore clothes that were smaller scale copies of those of their parents... 17th century children began to be dressed in clothes that were slightly different than those of adults. A new fashion was to dress children in robes with ribbons that were in fact the remnants of sleeves once found fashionable by adult wearers of these robes, but later deemed outmoded. Thus, in effect, new trends in children's clothing involved the hand-me-downs of adult fashion. The hand-me-down quality of newly developed culture of childhood could be found too in children's games and pastimes. For example, today we generally associate fairy tales, party games, and holidays such as Halloween with children. However, in the Middle Ages, fairy tales were enjoyed by the young and old alike. Games like snowball fights were played by entire communities, and adults as well as children went from house to house asking for money during the November holidays. Gradually, adults lost interest in these activities, and thus, like their castaway fashions, their games and activities became associated only with children. Children and Sex According to Arias, the association of children with certain manners of speech, styles of clothing, and activities came about relatively concurrently with the development, developing notion of childhood as a time of sexual innocence. Citing the diary of the French royal physician who cared for the young Louis the thirteenth, he argues that attitudes toward child sexuality were much more relaxed before the seventeenth century. For example, he notes the following episodes involving the young dauphin. It was a common joke, repeated time and again, to say to him, Monsieur, you haven't got a cock. And then he replied, He, here it is! laughing and lifting it up with one finger. These jokes were not limited to the servants, or to brainless youths, or to women of easy virtue, such as the king's mistress. The queen, his mother, made the same sort of joke. The queen, touching his cock, said, "'Son, I am holding your spout.' Even more astonishing is this passage. He was undressed, and his sister, too. They were playing na- placed naked in the bed with the king, where he kissed and twittered and gave them great amusement to the king. The king asked him, "'Son, where is Infanta's bundle?' He showed it to them, saying, "'There is no bone in it, papa.' Then, it was slightly distended, he asked, There is now, and is sometimes. Arias interprets such scenes as indicative of a general lack of reserve regarding children and sexual matters before the 16th and 17th centuries. Yet this casual attitude was not due to any notion of innate childhood eroticism, but rather to a belief that children's absolute lack of sexuality... It was not considered wrong to fondle a child or to speak explicitly of sexual manners before him simply because the child was believed to be unaware or indifferent of sex. Thus gestures and allusions had no meaning for him. They became purely gratuitous and lost their sexual significance. Toward the end of the sixteenth century and the beginning of the seventeenth century, however, the image of the child shifted from a sexually indifferent individual to a sexually innocent one whose purity was constantly in danger of being corrupted by immoral influences. Such a shift took place, Arias argues, predominantly in response to the rise of the modern educational system. Educators, most of whom were priests who were just as concerned with their pupil's salvation as they were with the acquisition of knowledge, closely monitored their students' sexual habits and behaviors, took measures to correct those that they deemed unhealthy. The result of such scrutiny, which was subsequently encouraged and disseminated by handbooks on the decorum, was a trend that involved the contradictory desires to coddle the child, to protect his innate innocence from evil influences, and to discipline him harshly, lest he turn to sin by his own devices. Disciplinary schooling. The second section of Ariza's study picked up where the first left off, on the subject of education and its influence on emerging notions of childhood. Arias begins by asking his reader to reconsider those aspects of education that we today regard as normal. For example, we expect young people to begin school at a relatively early age, along with other children of their own age. And we assume that as each year passes, students will perform increasingly advanced work. Yet, as Arias demonstrates, this approach to education is a relatively recent one. In the Middle Ages, few people were formally educated. The only medieval institution reminiscent of the contemporary university or school was the Cathedral School, where boys and men would study to become clerics. However, as the number of students and masters associated with Cathedral Schools increased, the institutions we know associate with the modern educational system began to evolve. Rather than allowing students of various ages to mingle together in the classroom, educators began to divide them up into individual age-based classes, a practice that contributed to the demarcation of childhood as a specific stage of life. Such separation also became a means of surveillance and control. Masters, assured of their moral superiority over their child charges, began to closely supervise students. Furthermore, they held their students responsible for informing each other in order to secure confessions of weakness corporal punishment became an increasingly popular means of discipline. Eventually, the day school evolved into the boarding school, where students were subject to observation and discipline around the clock. Thus, while the medieval school made no distinction between the adult and the child, the proto-modern school introduced a sharp divide between adult and child worlds and promoted the idea that children were subordinate beings in need of supervision and discipline. the rise of the nuclear family. According to Arias, the image contained in the medieval calendar tells us more about the rising importance of the family. Over the centuries, the calendar began to include not only men but women, street scenes, and children. Finally, by the 16th century, it began to include depictions of families. The 17th century saw a positive flood of such pictures. By that point, images of family were not only contained in calendars, but individual portraits and they were displayed not only in public spaces such as churches, but within private homes. Thus Arias concluded that the 17th century, which significantly enough is the era in which he argues the concept of childhood first flowered, is the point in history in which the family as we know it first found full expression. The rise of the family, Arias writes, was the consequence of a general movement in Western society from sociability to privacy. Before the 18th century, noble families lived in great houses in which space was shared between children and adults and servants and masters. Moreover, these wealthy families were surrounded by concentric circles of relations, including relatives, friends, clients, protégés, debtors, etc. This, indeed, was a different kind of social life, a crowded public life that placed more value on the collective than it did on the individual. However, by the 18th century, family began to hold society at a distance, to push it back beyond the steady extending zone of private life. An ever-growing partition between the inside of the household and the outside of the greater social world became more distinct and gradually the family withdrew into itself. This inward move made by families, Arias argues, was a cont- consonant with the increasing attention being paid to the child. First a waning to the practice of apprenticeship, a concurrent increase in local day schools meant that children were most often home with their birth families and therefore increasingly subject to special attention and affection. Moreover, the upper middle class's growing preoccupation with etiquette became increasingly focused on the proper upbringing of children. Parents began to share with schoolmasters and religious officials the responsibility of appropriately molding the child. The child became the center of the family's attention, so much that, by the 19th century, its status within the family and within social gener- society generally would become almost divine. Criticism of Arias, while Arias's *Centuries of Childhood* is widely considered a landmark text in family history, it has nevertheless been subjected to severe criticism. Many critics of Arias's work have re- reacted especially strongly to his claim that in medieval society the idea of childhood did not exist. Indeed, as Hugh Cunningham notes, medievalists never seemed to tire of proving Arias to be wrong, and thus set themselves the task of showing that the Middle Ages did have a concept of childhood. Not perhaps the same as in later, later centuries, but a concept nether, nonetheless. Such objections are keeping with Adrian Wilson's critique of the present-centeredness of Arius' study, to adopt a pre- present-centered approach to view, to view the past exclusively from the point of view of the present. Arius' mistake, Wilson contends, is to argue that medieval society has no awareness of young people simply because they lacked our awareness of what children are like and how they should be treated. Readers have also argued that Arias' present-centeredness is characterized by a degree of sentiment- sentimentalism and nostalgia. For example, Joan Acosella observed that the pictures of the family suggested by Arias' book are full of brueghel esque life and variety, t- tumble and zest, while the images of modern life suggested by his text are comparatively dark and severe. In other words, Arias romanticizes the medieval period as a time of greater sociability and observes the modern era only negatively. Develop in the modern era only negative developments, such as an obsessive love for children and paradoxically a semita- simultaneous desire to discipline and punish them. While such a view of modern era does not initially seem present-centered, it is, after all, a relatively negative view of the present. It nevertheless can be read as such. Insofar as its nostalgic turn involves evaluation of the present of the past in terms of the present. Yet another major criticism of Arius' study involves his use of the use of the aesthetic artifacts as historical evidence. While Arius does occasionally make reference to school rosters, laws, and statistics, sources that most historians regard as relatively objective and reliable hard evidence, the great majority of his sources are paintings, sculptures, poems, and other works of art. Critics view his decision to appeal to these sources as problematic for several reasons. First, as Wilson notes, Arias seems to assume that art directly reproduces and reflects life, but doesn't take into consideration that artist depiction of a theme may be deeply subjective, or that the co- content of an aesthetic piece might tell us more about the artistic trend than it does about the popular notions of childhood. Moreover, as Cunningham notes, Arias cites only those aesthetic objects which support his argument— concerning the discovery of childhood in the modern era, and seemed quite unaware of other medieval sources showing a naturalistic portrayal of childhood, which might complicate his argument. Why study Arius? Given the degree of criticism leveled at Arius's work, one might wonder whether there is any value in studying his history of childhood. Even though those who voice strong reservations regarding Arius's study nevertheless recommend it, if only because of the status as foundational work in the field of ch- children's history. While Iris's Centuries of Childhood was not the first published history of childhood, that honor belongs to George Henry Payne's 1916 te- text, The Childhood in Human Progress. It is nevertheless widely recognized as a classic and foundational text. The degree to which Arias has been cited by scholars in various academic fields, and moreover, the degree to which his work has inspired similar arguments concerning the discovery of childhood, suggests the indelible impact he has on the historical studies of childhood and family life. Centuries of Childhood has served as an invaluable catalyst for rich and enduring theoretical debate, therefore an acquaintance with its arguments and prerequisite for greater knowledge in the field of history of childhood. Another important aspect of Arius's text is the insistence on the historically and culturally contingent notions of childhood. Even those who reject Arias' argument regarding the relatively recent discovery of childhood would agree that childhood was experienced and imagined differently in the Middle Ages than it is today. That is, that material conditions, power relations, religious beliefs, and cultural mores have a profound impact on the formation of tr- notions of childhood. Therefore, Munn might credit Arias with the impact on the formations and furthering the notion that we might take for granted today, that childhood, and with it family life, is not a universal constant or natural category, but rather an ever-shifting concept.